If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Matthew. I know that's like not a good place when pastor says don't go in his sermon series, but Matthew 22 is where we'll be at this morning. And when you find your place, if you would stand to honor the reading of God's word. Uh, Pastor Josh is on vacation getting recharged, and that is a good thing. Jesus had to get away at times to get recharged, didn't he? And so pray for our pastor as he's away with him and his wife and uh, that they have a, a relaxing time. They'll come back refreshed, renewed, and ready to press forward uh, for many weeks and years to come. And so we are going to be in Matthew 22, and I figured this is a safe bet because at the rate we're going in Matthew, my son may graduate high school before he's done with Matthew. So we've got a few years at least before at Matthew 22, and you've got to get a few good digs in there on Pastor Way's Gone because he does it to us, so don't let him fool you. Um, but Matthew chapter 22 Uh, Verse 34 is where we'll be, down to 40. And the inerrant word of the Lord says in verse 34, But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Verse 40 says, and these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, it is good to be in your house the first day, the first hours of the day, the first day of the week. And Lord, as we come before you, Lord, we we don't come to hear the opinions of man. We come to hear the word of the living God, and Lord, we pray that your word would set us ablaze for you. Lord, we pray that uh, we would have our heart's desire set upon you, that it would be the hub upon which our faith extends to all the things that we do in our life. Lord, we just pray that uh, you would be with our pastor as he's gone, give him the relaxation and time away that he needs. Lord, may he come back refreshed and renewed. Lord, we just pray for the services here today, Lord, that if there's anyone lost that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, I pray for those that are backslidden, that are far from you, and the things of life that have come up and taken their love away from you, the distractions of the world. And Lord, I just pray that you would use my weakness Hide me behind the cross to help declare your word and your truth and help us to take it from this place forward and to this lost and dying world to reach those that are in need of a Savior. Lord, we ask this today in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So some have said that love does not make the world go round but it makes the trip worth the while. And today, I would like to ask the question, can you and I be described by the term love? Does how you live your life exhibit your love for God? And then we think about that, and most of us have at some point in time had a first love in our life, whether that was as a child, a teenager, uh, you perhaps remember uh, that teenage or that childhood crush, and some people call it puppy love. 
You probably remember working hard to get their attention, to get their, uh, you know, to get them to like you, to get them to love you. And as I was reflecting back on my childhood uh, sweetheart that I thought at the time, uh, it occurs to me now that throwing rocks at her to get her to like me (laughs) was probably not the right thing to do. That's not how I got my wife, I can tell you that. (laughs) I remember, um, you know, when we think about this, like we go through some extremes and and circumstances to get that person that caught our eye. uh, And we walk through, uh, you know, different aspects, trying to get their attention, trying to demonstrate our love for them. And whatever age, whatever era, and whatever group of people that we may be talking about, it seems that the rather universal thought is that love is the greatest of all the human emotions. And the songs and the poems and the books and the stories and films that man has authored could fill volumes and volumes and volumes of media. And our text today is about love. It's not about human love. It's about a supernatural love. It's God's love for man and how we should love God because he first loved us. And it is the greatest commandment. And this may seem like a thing that we all have heard before, but it's something we all need to be reminded of because we're the ones that are prone to wander. And so the religious leaders, and we're studying the, the, the context here, the historical setting behind this in Matthew 22, the religious leaders of Israel are attempting the only thing that they can do at this point, and that is to discredit Jesus. This is coming into the Passion Week, and he has got the, he's come into Jerusalem, and the, they are heralding him as the king. They think he's going to set up his uh, earthly kingdom, and the only thing that the religious leaders could do at this point to dis, was to discredit Jesus. They wanted him gone, but because of the crowds and the people that were there that were exalting Christ for his earthly kingdom, they thought, the only thing that they could do is discredit him because then they would know that the people would be on their side. And so here in chapter 22, there's three groups of people, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees, and they come to confront Jesus in a series of questions. And they do that throughout the Gospels, don't they? They begin to place... Jesus, it seems like in a corner, they're asking him, trying to ask questions, getting him trapped up to say something that he shouldn't, that they would then prove that he is a heretic. And the first question comes in verse 17 of Matthew 22, and we see that in 17, it says, Tell us therefore what thou thinkest thou, is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? And so here they are, they're asking Jesus, hey, should you pay tribute to Caesar or to God? And Jesus knew their hearts, he knew their thoughts, their intentions, and he told them to render unto Caesar the things that are due to Caesar, and unto God those things that are due to God. And so he baffles them, they walk away, then comes the next group, the Sadducees, in verses 23 through 32, and they start to begin asking questions about the resurrection. And they're saying, you know, that some of them didn't believe that there was a resurrection. The others were saying, they started asking questions like, hey, if, if a woman is widowed and her husband goes on, does she then marry her, his brother? And then whose wife would she be in heaven? And Jesus tells them that there's an error in their thought process, that they, they do err. And he answers them, and they're left in silence and walk away. 
So this brings us to the third question and, and their a last attempt to corner or pin Jesus in the corner. And in fact, Mark 30, uh, 12, 34 says this, And no man after that durst ask him any questions. So once Jesus answers this third and final question, they walk away and no longer ask him any more questions. And so here in Matthew twenty two thirty four is the fulfilling of the prophecy given in Psalms thirty or Psalms two verse two. Matthew twenty two thirty four says, But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. So here they're gathered together, they, they are coming against Christ, they are coming against the anointed one. And Psalms two two says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. And so that brings us to our first point today. And there's only two points. Uh, so, but it's all the subpoints, right? You've learned that. You're well-versed. Uh, so the question is the first point. The question by the lawyer here. And we see that in Matthew 22, 35 through 36. It says, Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And so this scribe, much like his contemporaries, uh, they are uh, the group of the Pharisees. And the word lawyer here means a law expert. It really is the same as a scribe. It was interchangeable, these two words. So sometimes when you're reading the scripture, it says a lawyer or a scribe. Uh, these are inter interchangeable words for the same person. A scribe was one who copied the law. He was the authority on it, and he taught it. Um, he was a law expert. It was the lawyers who were the theologians of the religious elite in Israel. Um, remember when they are asking Jesus, something we have to remember as we walk through this text is that as they're asking Jesus these questions, they're trying to get him to fail the test. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to discredit him. And so the background into Judaism here is that uh, the number one hero in Judaism is Moses. They revered Moses more than anybody else. And it was Moses who spoke to God, just as a man speaks to his friend, the Bible tells us. Um, they set him far and above from everyone else, from the patriarchs. And so they revered Moses, and he led Israel out of captivity in Egypt into uh, the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings. And if you sat through Brother Alex's class in here, you've, you've realized how they went through that. Um, the board, and he led them up to the border of the promised land. And it was Moses who had received the law, and he brought it down to the people. He experienced God's visible and glorious presence. It changed him, the Bible says, as he experienced God's visible and glorious presence. And so Moses, who penned the first five books of the Pentateuch of the Old Testament, is, is again, highly revered. This is who they set up. And now the Jews believe that the teachings of Jesus are attacking Moses' teachings. That's what the religious elite thought, and they thought that he was you know, going to come in and he was going to set up his kingdom. He was going to say something different that was contradictory to what the law of Moses was. And so Jesus knew this, and that's why on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, Jesus said this, Think not that I have come to destroy the law or, of, of the, or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And so Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew that, the, that they were trying to think that he was going to establish 
a new uh, law that superseded Moses, and Jesus assured them that he did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but he had come to fulfill it. He came to do what it could not do. And the law was just our schoolmaster to point us in it, that we were in need of a Savior. It was never for us to be able to achieve and, and work to our own salvation. And we see from these verses here that Jesus is aware of the fact that they're trying to accuse him of attacking Moses and, and setting himself up as a new authority and therefore diminishing Moses. And so let's go back to this question by the lawyer in Matthew 22, verse 36. He says, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Can you see that in somewhat there? He's like, Master, such flattery, right? Uh, but this term master, it is actually the Greek word didaskalos, uh, which means teacher, one who teaches concerning the things of God, which is the greatest commandment in the law. And essentially what he's saying is, Jesus, what is the greatest, greatest, what is the most important, number one commandment in all of the law of Moses? And we say, well, really how many laws were there, Braden? There were 613 separate laws that they had divided into light and heavy laws. They arrived at 613 laws because there were 1613 letters in the Hebrew text of the Ten Commandments. They had 248 positive affirmations, and then there was 365 prohibitions. And so, you know, you always hear about hit them with a nice thing and then hit them with a negative. And so now, when it comes to things, I pick up on the, hey, you did great on this, but, and it's like, oh, here we go. Here comes the hammer, right? Uh, This is where you messed up. But these these laws, the the light laws, were semi-optional. Like, it was like if they wanted to observe it, they wanted to adhere to it, they could. That's kind of the way they took the lighter laws. And then the heavier ones were more binding. Those were the ones that they held to, that they, they stuck to. But the fallacy behind this approach is that it only takes one sin, one breaking of the law, to be guilty of all, right? And James 2.10 gives us that. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. And so we can see the mistake in their process there already, that they felt that they could get away with uh, not keeping the lighter laws and only adhering to the heavier, stricter laws. Uh, Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he says, he, the lawyer, does not mean the first in order. Not like, hey, what was the first one given? But the first in weight and dignity. Which is the command which is we ought to have in a special manner, an eye to, and our obedience to, which lay a foundation for our obedience to all the rest of them. Not that any one commandment of God is little, because they are all commands of a great God. And so the lawyer, by asking Jesus this question, he, his approach was, if Jesus is who we, the religious leaders, really think he is, he's coming to be the Messiah, he's coming to set up this new kingdom, he surely is going to try to establish himself as that, and he's going to try to supersede Moses if he's the Messiah. They think that he's going to set himself up as the new authority, He is going to give a new law, and we will know then that he is an apostate. So what is the greatest law, Jesus? Just give us one. Give us the greatest one. And the scribes therefore asked Jesus, what single command was the most important? 
And this is similar to the rich young ruler back in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. He comes to Christ, and you remember him. He says, Master, what one good thing can I do that I may inherit eternal life? He's looking for just that one good thing. And Jesus says, there's none good but God. Now we go from the background and the approach as well as the question here to the response of our Lord, which is where we will spend the remainder of our time today, which brings us to point two. It is the longest point. Um, Jesus' response is the second point today. Jesus' response. Uh, Jesus' response to them, uh, take uh, back, uh, sorry about that. Jesus responds taking them back to something that they should have already known. This is something that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they should have known this. It's kind of like a, a law of the land. It, it's just something that's basic, that should be understood, that shouldn't have to be explained. And we see that in verses 20, uh, chapter 22, verses 37 through 38. It says, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And so the question is, do you know where he got that from? And most of you here today probably do know where he drew that from, but he, he takes them back to Moses. He takes them back to the book of Deuteronomy, and he did exactly the opposite of what they thought he would do. They really wanted him to exert himself over Moses, yet he takes them to Moses. Yet Jesus knows in their hearts, and he knows God's word better than they do because he is God and he is the author of it. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. You know, he, he is the beginning, he is the pioneer, he is the end. Now, not only did he quote Moses, but he quoted the most familiar passage that he pinned down called the Shema. It is known as the Shema. And so Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, this is the Shema. It is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And so when the Shema was revealed to Moses, Moses is about 120 years old. He is nearing death. And he has brought Israelite out of captivity through the wilderness wanderings, and he's on the border of the promised land. And God had told him because of his sin, he wouldn't go into the promised land, but he would then get them to that border of it. And he's instructing them. And in Deuteronomy, there's a series of instructions in the sermon that he's laying down God's precepts because Israel, the, in the wilderness wanderings, the complainers, that generation died off in the wilderness. The new generation was getting ready to go into the promised land, but they needed to know the precepts of God. And so he's laying this out for them here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and throughout the book of Deuteronomy and through these series of, of messages that he's laying out. And here's the thing. In Jesus' day, every Orthodox Jew, every Jew at that time of Jesus who was faithful to the religion would quote this. They're supposed to quote these verses twice a day. They even walk around, if you go over to Israel today, you'll see the Orthodox Jews, they still have it hanging. They have these victuals that they hang from their, their sleeves or from uh, their head, head attire, and there's these little square things in it. And in that is wrapped up pieces of parchment. And on that parchment is the Shema, or the Shema, I should say. And so they, they have that. They were to recite it every day, twice a day, 
So you would think that they would know this. Daniel Aiken said this, Yahweh is one. He is one in essence and existence. He alone is God. There is no other. This is a powerful statement of uniqueness and exclusivity. Our God is God alone, and our God alone will only accept our exclusive worship, love, devotion, and allegiance. Teachers of the law and the theologians could debate all that they want, but Jesus begins by bringing them back to the basics, the fundamentals, non-negotiables of the faith. And we should love this God because of who he is. And what I like to relate this to a lot of times is sports. You know, you get, uh, when we were growing up and playing sports, uh, and football especially, you get wrapped up sometimes in, in learning the offense or learning the defense, and, and you're executing the plays, but a lot of times you forget the fundamentals. You're so concerned about executing the game plan that sometimes you forget the basics, whether it's a tackle, whether it's a block. Uh, and, and so you can get wrapped up in uh, you know, the bigger picture, but it's the details of it sometimes that trip us up and can cause teams to lose games. And it's going back to the basics, and that's what the point is here. In his response, he, ref- he affirms the solidarity with Moses. He proclaims a verse that is most familiar to the religious leaders in Israel. And so in this, we see that what God really wants from man is his heart. He wants mankind to love him. And we cannot obey God without loving him, but if we do love him, we will obey him and follow him. And John MacArthur said, obedience cannot be merely external, but it must be internal, from the heart, motivated by faith, love for the one true God. And so we see here in thou shalt love, this comes from the Hebrew word ahav, Uh, which refers primarily to love of the will or love of the mind, the love of action rather than a love of feelings and emotion. And so this is the highest kind of love, not a love that you just feel that, you know, uh, love sometimes in, in the context of our culture is a feeling, it's an emotion, it comes and goes like the, the waves of the ocean. This love is a self-sacrificing love that despite what happens, I am still going to love that person. I am going to love regardless. And so rather than a love of feelings and emotions, this is a love of the will. This is a love of the mind. It's, It's a dedicated love, a love of commitment. And so the love that says this is right, this is noble, no matter what I feel, I'm going to continue to love. And so when we get into our our New Testament text here, in Matthew, it is in the Greek, and the word love here is the Greek word agapao, uh, which comes from the root word agape. And it is the highest form of love. And in our English, we we talked about this yesterday in an LBI class, Um, sometimes our English words... It's, it's a lazy language sometimes. In the Greek, there's different forms of love, and it, it differentiates to different levels of love. Here in our English, we can say, oh, I love pizza. I love my dog. I don't love cats, no. Um, <laughs> sorry, cat lovers. Uh, I love my wife. There's a different level to each of those things. And hopefully, as we see here, that 
this Greek word agapao, um, it is a love of unconditional and sacrificial love as God himself loves sinful man. And we see that in John 3, 16, for God so loved agapao, the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Again, in John 17, 26, I, and I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it that the love or agape wherewith thou hast loved me, agapao me, may be in them and I in them. And so this agape type of love, it is a love of the intelligence, uh, the purpose of the will, and it is opposed to the other Greek words for love of phileo, which is the love of an emotion or an affection. And it's opposed to the other Greek word eros, which is uh, of a physical sense. And so agapao is the highest form of love. Again, it is a love of purpose. Um, it is the noblest. It is a, saf- is a self-sacrificing love. Um, he tells us, and he tells them, um, that the number one thing is to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. And in Mark's account, he adds in with all of our strength. In Mark's parallel gospel account of this. And so in short, Jesus says, love God with all that you are and with all your faculties. And one interpreter said that you could really say that note that each use of this is, uh, of with is more literally out of. So out of your heart, out of your soul, and out of your mind, and out of all your strength is really what he's saying that is the point here. So simply put, we are to love God with all of our being, with everything that we have. Uh, the word heart here in the Hebrew is an understanding of the core of the person's identity. Uh, Proverbs 4.23 says, keep, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And so the Hebrew uh, text here, the heart for Hebrew, understands it is, in, in a, it is intellect, which produces thought, it produces words, and it produces actions. And it's as if a man thinks, therefore he is. And so the word soul uh, when it is isolated, can refer best to an emotion. And Christ said this in Matthew twenty six thirty eight. Then say he, Jesus, unto them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. And so this mind it here is replaced by might in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, might is a, a very broad word, it, but it seems to be that might has to do with the intentions of the will. It has to do with moving ahead with energy and that it is the same as with the word mind. Mind is having to do with the purpose and the intentions of the will. And so we've probably heard these sayings or we've probably even said them ourselves. Uh, We say something like, he had the mind to do this or she had the mind to do that. Uh, as As they're thinking of it, they're putting it into action. And so Mark's account Uh, Again, in strength, it is all of our physical capabilities. It's talking about our physical energy. It's talking about the function of our body uh, producing works. And so Sinclair Ferguson said, God is never satisfied with anything less than the devotion of our whole life for the whole duration of our lives. And so I want to pose a few questions this morning for us to help us evaluate where we're at. Because again, we're prone to wander. Uh, There's a, I was talking to a friend of mine and 
uh, him and his wife were in the pickup truck going down the road, and she was sitting next to him. You know, the bench seat, she's sitting right next to him, and then all of a sudden, she ends up scooting over to the door. And about a mile or two down the road, she's like, I just feel like there's this distance between us. He's like, well, who moved? He didn't move. He's in the driver's seat. She's the one that had moved over. And that's just a practical example of how we are with God. God doesn't move. We're the ones that are prone to wander. We're the ones that have our love and affections taken away from him. And so this morning, I want to pose a few questions to help us evaluate where we're at this morning with the Lord and our love for him. First one is, is the Lord an all-consuming passion in my life? Do I have a deep, intense, and abiding affection for my Lord? Am I loyal to my God with an exclusive love? Do I resist and even oppose anything or anyone that seeks to do my Lord harm? Do I enjoy spending time with my Lord? Do I do things that please my Lord and increase his joy? Do I brag on my Lord to others? Do I tell my Lord that I love him? And do I talk with my Lord as much as I can? Do I, do I keep a conversation? Do I pray to him as often as I can? And these things are not things that we do to get God to love us. These are things we do because God loves us. We do this because he loved us first, and uh, we, out of our affection for that, should love him. And we never lose sight of the fact that uh, we do not love him to get him to love us. We love him because he first loved us. First John 4.10 tells us, Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent forth his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so God is not looking for people to go through religious rituals. That, that was Judaism, uh, the religious rituals. You see that in some other uh, denominations, we'll say. They get very ritualistic in their worship. And, and so uh, here, uh, it, it is not looking for, he's not looking for people who are on the outside doing the right things and can go through the right motions. God wants people who, with their whole being, to love him. He wants all of us. He doesn't want just a part of us. He wants every single part. He wants all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And so think about this. When God loved us, he really loved us, didn't he? He gave us his all. He gave us his only begotten son to demonstrate his love towards us. He gave us everything. He gave us himself and death for our sins. And so he who has given us wholeheartedly Love does not want our half-hearted love in return. He loved us enough to give us his son. We're to love him enough to give him ourselves. John 15, 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And so we are to lay down our life for him as he has demonstrated for us. And Romans 12, 1 says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And the, the key thing in that is a living sacrifice, we tend to want to keep crawling off that altar. We want to keep going back to the things of old sometimes. And we have to die to self. That's why Jesus said in Luke 9.23 that you deny yourselves, pick up your cross daily. It's a daily dying to self and being a living sacrifice for Christ. 
And so God wants more than just our believing or our lip service. James 2.19 tells us that the, that the devils, what? They believe and tremble. And so he wants more than just a, a lip service. He wants every aspect of us. And so no one is ever right with God until his heart, soul, mind, and strength manifest love for God. A person doesn't come, become a Christian just because they may believe. A person becomes a Christian because they repent, they believe, and they call upon Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. The demons believe and tremble, but there's other steps that we must do. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, and saying, and saying this time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe the gospel. There's some that may be here this morning that you can't even begin to love God because you haven't entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. That's the first step. You have to call upon him as your Lord and Savior in order to have a love for God. And secondly, as Jesus said, a love for others. And so Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 says, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the mouth, uh, I lost my for with the mouth, uh, heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Some here today uh, have never truly repented and called upon Christ as their Lord and Savior. And this is evidence because you do not love God as you ought to. You don't have a desire for the things of God, and you do not have a love, a genuine love for others. And so when you have done this, when you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, uh, the Holy Spirit comes in. He takes up residence inside the believer and becomes your helper. He works in the believer's life and will help you to demonstrate a consuming love for God. Does that mean you will always be perfect? That you'll never sin? That you'll never struggle with love? No. I mean, look at Paul, the greatest apostle, uh, the greatest missionary outside of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 22, he says, For that which I do, I allow not, and for what I would, that I do not. Uh, but what I hate, that I do, if then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that is in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that what I would not, it is no more that I do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. And if you're like me, you feel like you just heard Dr. Seuss as Paul has laid that beautiful text out before us in the King James. And in essence, if I could break that down to a, a simplistic statement of Paul, this is what he's saying. I love God and I love what is right. And I love what honors God, even though I don't always do it. Even though sometimes I sin, I hate it. That's what Paul's saying in that lengthy text that I just read. Because what's inside of him is, is, no, is not good. He knows that he shouldn't do it, but he finds himself doing it, and he hates it. 
And so this was not the case with the Jewish religious leaders, though. They appeared on the outside uh, to be holy, to be righteous. You know, they, they looked right, they looked apart, they talked right, but inside of them was dead man's bones. They didn't have the love of Christ or the love of God within them. Matthew 15, verse 8, This people draw nigh unto me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, Christ said. Their hearts were far from him. On the outside, they may have looked right, talked right, spit right, but man, their hearts were just so far from him, they, they wanted no part of it. They couldn't begin to understand the scriptures because they did not love God. And they definitely didn't love their fellow man. And so Jesus pronounces in Matthew 23 the hypocrisies of the religious leaders of his day. Uh, during this time frame, in Matthew 23, he says unto them seven times, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. In verses 13, 14, 15, 23, 25, 27, and 29, he is just laying. I mean, he is just, he's just calling them hypocrites. He is just calling them out, and he's laying it before them. I love verse 27. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appeared beautiful outwardly, but are within, full of dead man's bones, and of all uncleanness. And so what is a hypocrite? I think we all know that. We've, we've probably come across a few of them. We at times probably ourselves have been a hypocrite a time or two. I think we can all tell when, when we see one, Right? They have a conflict in them between what they say and what they do. It's somebody who has something on the outside, but on the inside, something's off. It doesn't match up. Or they act one way around a certain set of friends, and they act a different way around another set of friends. Or perhaps it's they act one way at church, and they act another way the rest of the week away from church. And we see that played out in our homes, schools, work, wherever we go. And do you actually think that sometimes we could act differently sometimes at church than we do at home? And I'm not saying everybody, but there's people that are that way. That's why my father-in-law had the hardest time coming to faith. His dad did the part at church on Sunday. The rest of the week he was at home beating his wife, being an alcoholic, it didn't match up. And so that steered him away from the faith for a long time. And so these leaders were going through religious motions for what they could get out of it or what they could gain from it. They were looking for self-satisfaction. They were looking at for pride and ego to be built up. Uh, they, they had the appearance of righteousness you see, God has always longed to have all of our affections, not just the outward ones, but the inward ones as well. He's after the heart of man. Joshua 22 verse 5 says this, But take diligent heed to do the commandments and the law, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, charged you to do, to love the Lord your God, and to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cleave unto him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. 
Exodus 20, verse 6 tells us, and showing mercy on thousands of them that love me and keep my what? Commandments. Deuteronomy 7, 9 tells us this, knowing therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to thousands of generations. Nehemiah 1.5 tells us, And said, I beseech thee, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and terrible God, and that keep, keepeth covenant and mercy with them, that love him and observe his commandments. You know, we don't keep his commandments to get him to love us. Again, it's because we love him, we will do that. I don't serve my wife to get her to love me. I love my wife, therefore I want to do nice things for her and to serve her. Not to gain anything from it, but to demonstrate my love for her. And so, yes, God wants us to keep his commandments. That's the outward, but the, the inward is to love him. And when we get that right, then the other stuff flows naturally out of that. Again, it's the hub. Everything flows from that hub, and it's the spokes that are coming off of it. And so if the love aspect is off, all the other spokes are going to be off on that wheel. Can I say this, that it has always been at first, you love me, God, and because of that love, there is a desire and a commitment to obey? What did Jesus say to his disciples in the upper room? In John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. First John four nineteen says, we love him because he first loved us. And turn this around, that verse in 1 John 4, 19. Let's turn that verse around and say, uh, He first loved us, therefore we should what? Love Him. And we are those that should be marked by our love for God. Francis Schaeffer, the, the great apologist, said that the, the, one of the greatest evidences of faith, that it is genuine, that it is real, is the Christian love for one another. It's one of the greatest apologetics that has ever been known to man is our love for God and our love for our brethren. And so question is, is God worthy of our love this morning? Uh, of all time, you know, not just this morning. Of course he is. We know that sitting here. You're here on a Sunday morning. The world, those who are not saved, and potentially some here today, are marked by those who do not love God. They do not have a desire for his word. They do not have a desire for the things of God. They don't have a desire to pray. They don't have a desire to share the gospel with others. Uh, Deuteronomy 5.9 says, Thou shalt not bow thy, down thyself unto them, nor serve them. For the, I am the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children unto the thirds and fourth generation and them that hate me. And John fifteen eighteen says, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. And so for most of us, it is not that we don't love. Again, it's the fact that our love is misdirected at times. It gets diverted. It takes a detour. And we need to refocus that love on God. And the love he desires from us. And as we look at it, the person who truly loves the Lord with all his heart, all his soul, mind, and strength, 
Um, This is the person who trusts and obeys him. It's a love that meditates on his glory. It's a love that meditates on his great power. It is a love that loves what God loves. And Psalms 119.72 says, The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. Do we cherish the word of God more than we do money? Psalms 119.97 says, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day long. And one, Psalms 119.1-3, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And it is a love that loves what God loves, as 1 John 5.1 tells us. It is a love that hates what God hates, as Psalms 97.10 says, Ye that love the Lord hate evil and preserveth the souls of his saints. He delivereth them out of the hands unto the wicked. And so it is a love that rejects the world. 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so this love for the Lord is, as we see here, is, is defined, it's laid out in the scriptures. Um, the one who truly loves God is the one who truly strives to obey him. Like Paul, they know that their love is imperfect. So us sitting here this morning know that our love is imperfect. It'll never be perfect until we're in glory with him in heaven. But it is the direction, not the perfection, as you've heard Pastor Josh say. It's the direction of our life, not the perfection of it. And this is what Paul says later on in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 and 14. He says, Not as though I had already attained, neither were already perfect. But I follow after, if that I may apprehend, that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Verse 14 says, Brethren, I count not myself having apprehended, but this one thing I do, I forget those things which are behind, and press towards the mark of the high calling of Christ Jesus. And so as we think about that, and sometimes we get down on ourselves because we fall short, and yeah, we need to repent, and we need to press towards Christ, we need to lean into Him, but it's, again, pressing to those things. We're forgetting the distractions of this world. We're forgetting those affections that try to steal our love for Christ. We're leaving those things behind. We're pressing towards Christ. Think about this. To say Jesus died for man's sins is to say that he died for man's hatred of God. He died for man's sins, which is man's hatred of God, which is the essence of all sin. And what's awesome is that he is the great enabler. If you've trusted in Christ, he then becomes the great enabler, the great forgiveness, uh, the great forgiver. Romans 5, 5 says, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And so Jesus doesn't simply just stop here. They were asking for one great commandment. They're like, what is the greatest? And Jesus doesn't just leave them with the one, but he gives them a second one. And they're in, they, they go together. They're linked together. He gives them the second one in verse 39. It says, And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The second greatest commandment involves the same virtue as the first one, namely love. And can I tell you this this morning, that if we don't love God properly, if our vertical relationship with God is not right, all the other ones are going to be off with man. 
And so that is the, the utmost, and that's why he took it there first, and then everything flows out of our relationship with God. And, and so here, these two are linked because one cannot say, I love God, but I hate my brethren. I hate man. And he lays this out in 1 John 4.20. He says, if a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he, hath love, for he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God and whom he hath not seen? And then these religious leaders, they used to take it back one, and they would say, oh, well, that's, you, know, you don't have to love your enemies. Well, Jesus, being Jesus and God, and he knows everything, he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 47, you must love your enemies. It's one thing to love your friends and people that are just like you, isn't it? I get along great with my friends. There's some people that I get under. Raise your hands if like, somebody gets under your skin. Just everybody has their hands up. Know that you get under somebody else's skin too, right? We all do. <laughs> the longer you're sometimes in a relationship, things flare up. There's little things that people do in the relationship. I know I aggravate my wife all the time. Would you just pick up this and put it away? Um, yes, honey. I will. And then two days later, it's right back where it was that I left it two days previous. Uh, Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44 say this, Ye have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. If you're like me, that's a tough couple verses. Not so much anymore like as a Christian, but even as a Christian, that's tough. Previous to being a Christian, that's like, yeah, I'm going to go back and get them twofold. I want to, you know, I'm going to get them back. So, again, he's saying to love my neighbor. So who's my neighbor? Is it, is it Marilyn? Is it Patty? Is it Miss Candy? My neighbor's on my street? No, it's everyone. It is everyone that we come into contact with. And so it is literally everyone we encounter on a daily basis. It means anyone and everyone that we have an opportunity to meet in any way, form, or fashion. Genuine love for one's neighbor is the same kind of genuine love for God. It is by choice. It is purposeful. It's intentional. It is active, and it is measured. And how is it measured? If you've ever been around a boiler how do you know how much water is in that boiler? There's a little glass tube on the side of the boiler, and it'll tell you how much water is in there. If it's half, then you've got a half a boiler full of water. If it's full, it's completely full. And how does that relate? It relates into our relationship with God. If our relationship with God is full, our relationship with others is going to be full. If my relationship with God is half empty, and my relationships with others are going to be that way as well. And so loving ourselves, obviously, we don't have to be told to love ourselves, do we? That's a natural default. I am like the worst person when it gets sick. I, I, I tell you, my wife will tell you that. I'm the worst patient. Um, I complain and whine and cry, and I need to take care of myself. Um, but loving ourselves is our default position. We don't need to be told this. We automatically do it. If we are hungry, we eat. If we're thirsty, we get a drink. Ephesians 5.29 says this, For no man hath ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourished it and cherished it. Are you as convicted as I am this morning by this? Because I know I struggle with these things. 
One's love for people reveals the degree of his love towards God, like I mentioned previously. Jesus sums this up in verse 40, these two commandments. He sums this up to the lawyer in verse 40. He says, and on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Because out of those two, if you love man and you love God, you're going to fulfill all the other laws. Together, these two sum up the entirety of the Ten Commandments. Think about this. If you love God, the first four of the Ten Commandments are all about loving God and keeping Him in His right place. The other six of the Ten Commandments regard your love or describe your love towards man. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to steal from him. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to covet his things. You know, it's all laid out. And, and the fact that there are laws in the Bible against murder, and there's laws in our land against murder, it indicates that we do not love each other right. It's been since Cain and Abel, right? The fact that there are laws in the Bible against idolatry means we don't love God the way we ought to love God. Paul summed it up well in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. He says, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Verse 10, love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So how do I keep the law? One, no, we can't keep it. Christ has done that for us. And because of that, we love out of that. And then when we do that, it helps everything else be in its right place and position. As we pursue our relationship with God with a wholehearted devotion, the immediate spillover is the fullness of that relationship and will be into the lives of those we come into contact with. Warren Wiersbe said this, Jesus made love the most important thing in life because love is the fulfilling of the law. If we love God, we will experience his love within and will express that love to others. We do not live by rules, but by relationships. A loving relationship to God that enables us to have a loving relationship with others. And as we close this out today, the lawyer approved and agreed with Jesus. He says in Mark's account, Mark 12, 32 and 33, And the scribe said unto him, Well, master... He's just been profoundly laid out. Jesus lays it all out for him. Thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all thy heart, and with all thy understanding, with all thy soul, and all thy strength, is the love. And to love his neighbor as himself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. God wants obedience. He doesn't want sacrifice. He wants us to love him. And Jesus' response back to the lawyer is kind of staggering for us. Mark 12, 32, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. He rightly answered, The Bible does not state if this scribe ever repented and believed and called upon the Lord as his Savior. We can only hope that the... 
that he, unlike the rich young ruler, got saved. The rich young ruler turned away from the truth and walked away. There's perhaps some here today that you've been walking away from the truth for a long time in your life, that haven't called out upon Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've been going through the religious motions. And in conclusion today, I would tell you that you need to be saved. And for all of us that are here today, know that we will never truly love God as we ought to, but that should be the direction of our lives. That should be where we're pursuing. And if we're not there, we need to come to the altar or in our seats today and get right with God. We need to repent of those things. And so just to kind of wrap up this, and over 100 years ago, a group of pastors assembled for this evangelistic event or a citywide campaign. Almost all of them agreed that D.L. Moody should be the evangelist to speak at this event. One pastor objected, and he said, you make it sound like Mr. Moody has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. Another pastor rightly spoke up, and he says, Mr. Moody does not have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on D.L. Moody. Does the Holy Spirit have a monopoly on your life today? Do we truly love God as we ought? We must love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you do not know Christ as your Savior... There's nothing that you can do other than coming to the altar today and getting right with him to have that right relationship and to love God properly. And then only then will you come to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Or perhaps like the lawyer today, you're in the kingdom. Uh, you're, you're not far from the kingdom. Know today that you can come and make that decision. If you would stand with